coming up in this episode. There are no real boundaries in cyberspace, but at the same time, when you talk about uh, dealing with cybercrime, uh, promoting cybersecurity, you're still governed by domestic laws. And you're still governed by a situation where law enforcement authorities can actually only act within their country. And if they want to act in another country, they have to do it through the authorities of the other country. That's Alexander Seeger. He's the head of the cyber crime program for the Council of Europe. He's located in Romania. And he's going to tell us just how difficult it is to catch a thief in cyberspace. But not only that, how difficult it is to conduct any investigation in cyberspace. And in this modern age that we live, every single crime that happens has a cyberspace connection. He'll explain it to us on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Cybercrime is an everyday fact of life, but there is a danger with it being so common that we get desensitized to it. We get hacked one of our credit cards, we cut it up and get a new one. If an account gets compromised, we change the password. But did you know that investigating internet crime and cybercrime is one of the most difficult types of investigations on the planet? The reason for it is because of the location of the data related to our accounts. On this program, we're talking with Alexander Seeger. He's head of the cybercrime program at the Council of Europe and also executive secretary of the Committee of the Parties to the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. Alexander, thank you for taking time to join us. Absolutely. When we were getting prepared to do this interview, you mentioned something regarding boundaries that I hear a lot. And, you know, that is a very, very interesting concept because we, in the modern era, are used to a certain set of physical, although they're, 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 we don't really envision these boundaries um, between countries and between continents and between oceans uh, so much physically, but we know that they are there. But in cyberspace, it's very different. So how, how do you manage cybercrime or, shall we say, cybersecurity, um, realizing that there are no boundaries and specifically as it relates to Europe? Uh, that, that is absolutely clear. We have, we have this problem, this... Um this, this particular challenge that there are no real boundaries in cyberspace, but at the same time, when you talk about uh, dealing with cybercrime, uh, promoting cybersecurity, you're still governed by domestic laws. And you're still governed by a situation where law enforcement authorities <clears throat> can actually only act within their country. And if they want to act in another country, they have to do it through the authorities of the other country. 
And, and these are the type of uh, very specific challenges we are dealing with these days. And perhaps one thing I would like to underline here, yes, we're, we're talking here about cybercrime. That means, you know, um, offenses against computers like hacking, like uh, denial of service attacks. We talk about cybercrime as offenses by means of computers like fraud, like uh, child abuse. But we also need to think about electronic evidence in relation to any crime. So you may have a kidnapping case where an email, a ransom email is sent. That is not cybercrime, but it's evidence in a computer system. You may have two terrorists uh, conspiring to carry out an attack. That is not cybercrime, but it's still evidence on a computer system and so forth. So just want to make it clear, we talk about a situation now where each and every crime may have evidence on a computer system. Okay. We, only, we not only talk about a few millions or billions of cyber attacks, we talk about any crime these days is, is related to this. And now the problem is, do you use, do you use webmail, um, JJ? Yes, yes. So, do you know where is your data? <laughs> I hear it's in the cloud someplace. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So now let's assume uh, you're investigated. How, how would law enforcement know where is your data? You know, how do they know where to search for? And in, in the words, US, you have a lot of infrastructure located there. So, it's a good chance that your data is somewhere in the US. But if you're in Europe, data may be anywhere. Ah. So you, you, what you're saying is we don't know what the address is for the cloud. <laughs> well, we we know, but you know, you then have one cloud provider who is hidden behind layers of other cloud providers. Uh -huh. And the data may be held in one place or multiple places or maybe move be moving between places or sometimes data may also be fragmented between places. Mm. So. We need to. We are trying to to wrap our minds around this and trying to some find some solution. For example, to this particular type of, of problems. So let me ask you this then: How do you manage this problem? Um, you know, needing to do what your job calls for in the EU, but also recognizing the difficulty that you just laid out very eloquently. How do you manage this problem of getting the information that's necessary from a legal perspective and information as well that's necessary for uh, protection against threats? Uh, how do you manage doing that? Well, what, what we're trying to do is to bring as many countries as possible around the table to find common solutions because you cannot solve this as one state or as one region. And what we have to bring countries around the table is the so-called Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. It's a treaty that was opened in 2001 for signature. And where, for example, not only European countries, but also the United States is a party, Canada is a party, Australia, Japan, Mauritius, Sri Lanka. There are many parties around the world to this treaty. And we bring together the parties to this treaty to say, okay, we have here the problem of how do we secure evidence in the cloud, in the context of a specific criminal investigation. And, and then we, uh, we, we can see, are the solutions perhaps already there um, within the Budapest Convention, within the text, so that we can just do an interpretation of an existing text. And this is what we just did three days ago. We agreed, uh, we agreed on an interpretation of a specific 
provision in the Budapest Convention. And that says, for example, that if a service provider is offering a service in my country, let's assume Facebook, you know, Facebook is not in France, but they're offering a service in France without necessarily being here. We could still, law enforcement can still ask Facebook in this case to produce subscriber information to say who owns this account. And the same would apply to, to other uh, service providers that work multinationally. Um, and um, we have to be careful here because we, we cannot, uh, we have to be careful that we don't uh, invade the privacy of individuals, that we violate human rights, rule of law standards. So for this case, in this particular case, we limit ourselves to so-called subscriber information. We are not going for content. We are not going for other type of data. We only say subscriber information. Who owns this account? Who opened this webmail account or this social media account? Uh, and that would then allow service providers to respond as a legal basis. There's a lawful request. There's a legal basis for it to respond to that. And that is already an important step ahead. And that was achieved after difficult negotiations uh, by the 28th of February. Indeed, that was a very significant scenario. I do recall reading about that and some of the other scenarios that were of great concern. And as I understand it, the evolution of cybercrime is one of the major concerns for organizations like yours, how the criminals that engage in cyberspace evolve the technology that we use to improve and to be more efficient and productive also yep. helps helps them so how do you approach dealing with that problem well we are we are trying to we are trying to focus on what we are good at and we are trying not to do what we are not so good at so what we are good at is we because we have this Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, we have an international legal framework where we now have uh, more than 50 parties to it in another 20 states or so that are observers to it, many international organizations. We can bring these countries and organizations around the table and we can find legally binding solutions. We can say here we have a treaty. Based on this treaty, we can do this and this and this. This is one aspect to it. The fact that, of course, countries sign up to a treaty doesn't mean that it's actually applied in practice. So we have uh, we set, we have set up a, a sort of um, review or assessment mechanism within between the parties. So we are assessing how do parties actually implement this treaty? How do they apply it in practice? Did they enact domestic law as they should have done under this treaty? And if not, we then go to them and recommend to them to, to improve. But another very important element of this uh, approach is capacity building. We have, uh, for that reason, we set up a specific office in, in Romania, in Bucharest, uh, three years ago. And from that office, we provide support to countries worldwide to help them improve the legislation, to train them. I've just signed, uh, before this call, I've just signed a number of letters inviting participants from West African countries, from, from Mali, from Niger, from Nigeria, from Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, and from other countries to come to Dakar in, in, in Senegal in, in three weeks for a training of trainers. So we want to train 
judges from these countries to train other judges in their respective countries on how to deal with cybercrime and electronic evidence. This is just one example that now comes to my mind because um, I was dealing with it a few minutes ago. So we have 100, 200 activities a year of this nature around the world. So it is the common standards in the form of the Budapest Convention. We have the, the parties to the convention to constantly review how they are doing themselves and how other parties are doing. Uh, develop new solutions like the one I mentioned about access to evidence in the cloud. Uh -huh. And the third part, the, the capacity building side. So these are the three things we are focusing on in our work. So we've talked a lot about the approach to dealing with cybercrime and cyberspace and the issues that come along with it and, and the future. But what we haven't talked about so far yet are where the threats are coming from. Where do you see the majority or the most threatening uh, concerns coming from, such as, you know, which countries, which groups, which organizations? We hear a lot about Russia. We hear a lot about uh, groups associated with Russia. We hear a lot about uh, groups in Eastern Europe. But in reality, they're all over the place. But where do you see the most concerning threats as far as uh, the Council of Europe is concerned coming from? The, well, the, the, the problem is the, the, the type of threat are so diverse, the offenders are so diverse, there may be many Eastern European uh, organized crime groups behind it, but even if they're behind it, they're using so-called botnets, which means they use networks of infected computers that are then used to attack others. And sometimes some of these botnets have, have millions of computers connected to it. So the attack may then come from a computer in in France, or maybe they come from your computer. Maybe your computer is part of a botnet, you're not even aware of it. Mm -hmm. and maybe your computer is attacking the infrastructure of a third country. That's that's part of this difficulty, That uh, and that's a, a major a major uh, threat vector and, and, and technique, and that, that, is, um, that is botnets that are used to spread malware, that are used to uh, carry out denial of service attacks against um, critical infrastructure, um, that are used for, for massive forms of, of data theft um, and so forth. Now, do you see any um, or organization or any country um, the leaders leading this, 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 this problem? Yes, you mentioned the fact that botnets are used, but we see quite often at least anecdotal evidence that a lot of Russian-linked groups are involved in hacking, involved in uh, cybercrime. Do you see the same thing? There are lots of reports about um, about um, criminal groups uh, in Russia or of Russian origin or with links to Russia, uh, but also also many other countries. Um, mm -hmm. That is clear. Um, again, at the end, to trace this back and to 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 attribute an attack to a given country or region is extremely difficult, as we know. They may use American infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if you then look at it, it, you may, it may resolve to a server in the United States. Mm -hmm. Who knows? So at the end of the day, what we're looking at right now is a very confused and convoluted problem when it comes to tracking down the perpetrators of crime. Is that correct? Cybercrime, is that correct? That is that is absolutely correct. And for that reason, we need extremely efficient 
international cooperation. Is the U.S., what role is the U.S. playing with the Council of Europe at this point in this? The, the United States, um, actually we're now in beginning of 2017. In the beginning of 2007, 10 years ago, the uh, United States of America became a party to the Budapest Convention. They ratified in, in mid-2006 and then in the beginning of 2007, I believe, became a party. United States has been involved in the negotiation of the Budapest Convention in around 98, 99, 2000, 2001, and has been an extremely active party to uh, to this treaty. Um, active in the sense of uh, encouraging other countries to join the Budapest Convention, active in, in the work of the Committee of the Parties, active in the sense of capacity building. So I think uh, it has been extremely valuable for us to have United States as a party. Let's face it, most of the internet infrastructure, the main multinational corporation dealing with cyber issues, internet service providers, social media platforms, are of US origin or are based in the United States. Any country will need to cooperate with the United States of America. So to have the US as a party to the Budapest Convention is extremely important. So, as, as you mentioned that particular element, um, I want to find out from you what you view personally as the biggest or the most significant cyber threats to the Council of Europe first and then to the world. As, a, as Council of Europe, we look at it as a, as a threat to human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. If, if you know, the... the the right to private life is a fundamental right. Freedom of expression is a fundamental right. If you have now the, 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 the private data of hundreds of millions of individuals stolen, or as, as we have seen in, 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 in the Yahoo theft, uh, I think it was more than a billion in one go, mm -hmm. or with one company over a period of time, uh, that is a serious threat to the rights of individuals. If you have cyber attacks to shut down um, media, you know, um, newspaper, TV stations, uh, civil society organizations, that is a serious threat to uh, a, ser a serious threat uh, to the freedom of expression and so on. So you can you can really explain many of these cyber threats as, as threats to human rights, rule of law and democracy or if what you have now with um, with with all the with all the fake news debates, with interference into or, or reports about interference in, into election processes and so on, that also undermines the actual actual democratic processes, but it also affects the the trust of of citizens in in democracy. So, what we said some years ago, and people were saying, ah, cybercrime is not such a big deal. Uh, from um, from looking at the values we are standing for, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law, cybercrime is a very big deal now. Alexander, I want to ask you a, a question that it, it may sound funny, but it's not funny. It is designed, it's a serious question that I want your perspective on. Um, mm -hmm. and that is, is the internet and cyberspace tangible? Can you touch it? Because I've heard people say that in order to get ordinary people to focus on the vulnerability that we all have when it comes to the internet, computers, smart devices, tablets, anything connected to cyberspace, 
we need to understand that they say it is tangible. What's your view on it? Um, whatever happens through the internet has real consequences, has tangible consequences. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that yet. You know, there, there is, it was interesting. There was a politician in Germany recently. She was con constantly insulted in the worst way on the Internet. You know, she, she was a woman, so she, there were also sexual insults, but political, all sorts of insults. And people dare to do it because, you know, they thought um, Internet is not tangible. It's nobody knows who they are and so on. But what she then did, she, accompanied by some journalists, went to visit some of the people that insulted her. The moment she became tangible to them, meaning standing in front of them, they completely changed their tone. Hmm. <laughs> so what right? you're, what you're, what you're people, pointing people, out is... People have to realize, people have to realize that they are not the dogs behind the tree, and nobody knows they're a dog behind the monitor, you know? You know that famous cartoon? Yeah, so they're not anonymous. They are not anonymous. They are, they are real, and what they're doing has real consequences, and people have to realize that. So is because it, what you see, what you see, is so much bullying, harassment, hate speech, um, violence via 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 the internet. Because there are, people feel there's no social control; they can do whatever they want. People have to become more responsible. People have to know, have to realize that what they're doing hurts other people, has real consequences. And so how did they track these people down? Some kind of digital forensics? No, it was um, people thought simply because because they used Facebook and, and, and whatnot, you know, and, and somehow you can figure out who is in the, behind a Facebook account. Uh, so And some of them didn't even change the name or anything. It, what that was plain, but simply, they simply thought because they're sitting behind a computer and uh, the other person cannot see them, they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So it was not so difficult to find a pill, but it just shows, it's, it's an anecdote in a way, but it shows it is tangible, it has tangible results. And the moment you bring people face to face, um, many of them will become more reasonable again. Alexander, thank you for taking time to talk to us about this. This is a very extensive and fascinating topic that's a lot more involved than we have time for today, but we will go back to it. We'll come back to you. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. Anytime. That's Alexander Seeger, head of the Cybercrime Program at the Council of Europe. Coming up in the next episode of Target USA. You know, I've, I've been out for about a month and a half now, but I can tell you that, uh, that aviation is still, for many reasons, uh, one of the number one targets of interest on the part of individuals, terrorist groups and, and individuals. Why? Who are lying. You know, I think it's, uh, there's a spectacular nature to, to attacking aviation. Peter Neffinger, former TSA administrator, joins us for a candid conversation about the state of aviation security today. There's a very real desire on the part of individuals and terrorist groups, individuals aligned with terrorist groups and terrorist groups themselves, to get something through a checkpoint onto an aircraft to damage the aircraft. That's coming up on our next episode of Target USA. Thank you for joining us, and please follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's one word, Tango, Uniform, Sierra, Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, J, the color green, at WTOP.com. That's whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this 
is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey everyone, I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk, no action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share.